0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Welcome to CAC Stories, brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. This podcast tells the stories of our members. I'm Natalie Pearson. From Drugs, Communism and Terrorism, and now the COVID-19 pandemic, the Philippines under Duterte can be characterized as a rolling series of security threats. To manage these threats, the Duterte administration has relied heavily on the military. So what is the role of the military in Philippine politics under Duterte? How does it compare with the role of the military in other Southeast Asian countries, such as Thailand, Indonesia and Myanmar? And what does it mean for democracy in the Philippines? To explore these questions in more detail, I am joined by Professor Aris Arugai. Professor of Political Science and Associate Dean for Research, Extension and Publications in the College of Social Sciences and Philosophy from the University of the Philippines in Diliman. He is also Editor-in-Chief of Asian Politics and Policy. His main research interests are comparative democratization, civil-military relations, ASEAN regionalism and Philippine foreign and security policy. He has also lectured and trained military and police officials of the Philippines in institutions such as the National Defense College, Command and General Staff College and the Philippine Public Safety College. Aris also gave the Philippines update at our annual Politics in Action event in 2017. Welcome back to SIAC, Aris.
0: Thank you very much, Natalie. It is a joy to do this podcast with CIAC uh, folks and um I know that the people behind CIAC, like Professor Michelle Ford and Dr. Liz Kramer, as well as my research uh, collaborator and friend, Dr. Sin Peng, are wonderful members of CIAC, and I'm sure you're doing a wonderful job of promoting Southeast Asia in Australia as well as beyond.
1: Thank you. And we're so excited to have you here with us today to talk about the Philippines and the military under Duterte. So I was pretty astonished to learn that the armed forces of the philippines enjoys really high levels of public satisfaction something like 79% of filipinos trust the military according to a poll conducted in 2019 where does this confidence and trust come from
0: the philippine military has been an instrumental institution during our martial law years in the marcos dictatorship and right after redemocratization in 1986 A lot of the negative stigma stemmed from their participation in that authoritarian regime. But throughout the many decades of democratization and reform, the military was able to improve its image, even prior to the rise of Duterte to power. But the renewed public confidence towards the military is not only because of the military's own efforts, to transform itself as a more civilian-obedient institution. Over the past few years, particularly under the Duterte administration, he has actively promoted and raised the prestige of the military. He often would call them a highly trusted and efficient institution. So this unconditional trust of a sitting civilian president toward the military had some form of bandwagoning effect on the way the public views a military that has been a participant of uh, dictatorial rule to a military that is helpful in the governance and security challenges of the Philippines.
1: So, the military has undergone modernization since the redemocratization process started in 1986. It's also been receiving unconditional trust and support from President Duterte in the last few years. How much has the reform process contributed to greater accountability and effectiveness in the military?
0: Right. In terms of reform and uh, modernization, the Philippine military has been receiving a lot of attention from the Philippine government. If you compare it, for example, to their counterparts in the security sector, like the police, uh, intelligence, the military has received a lot of the attention and resources. And this makes it quite unsurprising that they would be reformed and modernized because of the significant attention paid by the Philippine government. However, as in any reform process in a democratizing country, reform needs to be sustained. And unfortunately, while the Duterte administration has paid lip service to reform and continued modernization of the military, it has not translated into actual policies. A lot of the reform measures put in place prior to the Duterte administration has actually not been implemented. So for example, the renewed commitment to human rights and international humanitarian law that was quite evident during the predecessor administration, can no longer be seen and felt during the Duterte administration. You have a president who even tells the military and the police that it's okay to kill, that it's okay to violate human rights because they don't really matter. So a lot of the rhetoric from a commander-in-chief would definitely have some form of impact on the way the military sees itself as an institution that should obey civilian authority.
1: So if I can generalise, would you say that it's accurate to say that the military had good intentions since 1986, but has gone off course under Duterte? Well, definitely, because at the end, the military
0: is supposed to be an institution under civilian supremacy. So the military is trained to follow orders of civilian political leaders. So just like in other countries, particularly in Southeast Asia, the quality as well as the demeanor of the military is often dictated by how they are seen and treated by the civilian political elite. So if you have civilian leaders who don't really pay heed to democratic civilian control of the military, then you will not have the military saying that, oh, we're still going to be under you. But if... You allow us to do a lot of these things, so be it. We'll, we'll just follow your orders. So, what is lacking, I think, under the Duterte administration is this steadfast commitment to ensure that the military stays the course of reform that has been started since 1986. Unfortunately, the Duterte administration sees the military more as an instrument to achieve its political agenda, of which some members of the military have willingly and are willingly participating in.
1: Yeah, and so have the waters been muddied further by Duterte's appointment of former military generals, not only in defense and security roles, but also as administrative heads in a range of departments and portfolios? So appointing former military generals as bureaucrats, basically. Yes, that
0: is right, Natalie. Uh, In fact, when I do my, my lectures and training in military institutions in the Philippines, this is always a bone of contention. Uh, because to a lot of the members of the Philippine military, retired generals are already civilians. De jure, meaning they're not officially part of the military institution. They're retired. They're no longer uniform. But I always make the case that that is a very superficial way of, of seeing things, particularly in a country that is still a developing democracy. So I often say there are two reasons why they're still not civilian de facto. One is that they continue to have a military mind, meaning appointment of retired generals will have the militarized framework in mind in the dispensation of their functions. This military mind is non-deliberative. It seems to also oversimplify things because... The military general is often trained to engage in war, and from the viewpoint of war, it's mostly black and white. Complex policy challenges facing countries often need to see the gray more than simply the black and white. The second reason is the network that they still belong to, despite retiring. So what we have observed from our own research is that there is a multiplier effect an appointment of a single retired general means sometimes the appointment of a lot of the members of his cohort, uh, as well as the other military officials who served under him when he was still in active service. So this means the complete replacement of significant top layers of the civilian bureaucracy by retired military officials. So we're not just talking about five or six retired military generals here, Natalie. We're talking about significant levels of decision making because at the end the retired generals get to appoint the people who work for them and they often appoint people who they know who have worked under them when they were still in active service
1: right i mean it's pretty interesting to see that some of these military generals or former military generals are working in portfolios such as environment social welfare and even the peace process Is Duterte putting them in these roles because they are obedient and efficient and strategic, or is it because of this high public confidence in the military? It's
0: quite unprecedented. In the Philippines, I can count with the fingers of uh, one of my hands the only times wherein a defense minister or secretary was a civilian with no military background, because there seems to be the norm that this should be under the leadership of a retired military official. That is unsurprising. But you're right, in certain portfolios that doesn't seem to be in sync with a military general's toolkit, but they are still getting appointed to these positions. But what is clear now, in hindsight, particularly in portfolios like social welfare and development and the environment, that this is a larger plan to make sure that certain internal challenges to Philippine security, notably, for example, terrorism and the communist insurgency, uh, these portfolios are critical portfolios to be handled by retired generals because the fight now against these armed non-state groups are no longer just from a military point of view, but from a more holistic point of view, The Duterte administration would even label it a whole-of-government approach in dealing with internal security threats like the communist insurgency.
1: Mm. And what sort of impact does this have on an already weakened bureaucracy? You, You mentioned the multiplier effect. Does this lead to groupthink?
0: Definitely. There is a lack of plurality of perspectives in the formulation of policies. There seems to be an oversimplification of the solutions And you can clearly see this uh, not only dealing with the communist insurgency, but even with our pandemic response. Apart from a few other countries, the Philippines is the only nation wherein the pandemic team is mostly composed of non-experts in public health, meaning retired generals. The epidemiologists and the doctors are the minority. In, in the body that is supposed to formulate the pandemic response. And if you ask me, it is not difficult to make the correlation between that and the deplorable state of our pandemic response and the fact that the Philippines right now has relatively has the highest number of cases and we're in one of the longest, if not the longest, militarized lockdown in the world.
1: I was going to ask you about the role that the military's played with COVID and this extended lockdown that you've been enduring. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yes, I think if you compare,
0: for example, to some of our neighbors like Taiwan and Vietnam, the COVID 19 response of the Philippine government was quite late. Part of this is the fact that the Duterte administration considered the COVID 19 as a non threat and it doesn't want to further antagonize its other big neighbor, China, and wanted to cordially embrace China. And this is a totally different topic that could be a subject of another podcast. But what is clear here is that the Duterte administration was quite late. However, when it responded to the pandemic, it literally closed down the entire archipelago. So even in islands where there were no cases, the extreme lockdown implemented by the military in the security sector was imposed. Massive financial assistance was deployed even in areas wherein people can still go out and work and still live normally because there are some islands in the Philippines that is quite a challenge to get to. And therefore, COVID might not have reached them in the outset. Right now, there is no more financial assistance being provided. And this prevents The government from imposing a stricter lockdown when it is necessary. We're also the last Southeast Asian country to receive vaccines. And I think we're also the Southeast Asian country that has been the slowest in the rollout of vaccines. And the vaccines that we have received so far are all donations, and most of them are donations from, unsurprisingly, from China.
1: I want to turn now to another security threat other than COVID, and that is the military's historic enemy in the Philippines, namely communism. I wanted to ask you about how the University of the Philippines has recently become entangled in this, specifically the allegations that the University of the Philippines has become a hub for communist recruitment. Can you tell us more about this and and what has been the impact on academic freedom?
0: Right. Right. If you look at the way that the Duterte administration since 2016 has uh, somehow made efforts to intended or otherwise to erode Philippine democracy, you can see some form of a series of assaults on civil liberty. So we started with freedom of the press. Then the government proceeded with freedom of expression, with the enactment of of stricter laws for example on social media uh, as well as on the internet the latest casualty is academic freedom the idea of anti-intellectualism is often attributed to populist governments around the world it seems like populist leaders don't really like intellectuals and academics and you you see this in a lot of other countries where there are populist governments but in particular The University of the Philippines has been the latest casualty. Uh, It is not a secret that the government does not really see the university the way that previous governments have seen it, as the premier state university of the country where supposedly the nation's best and brightest are shaped. The Duterte administration belittles the contribution of the university Of the Philippines. And you can see this after the defense secretary mentioned that what makes the University of the Philippines special. Well, actually, it is special because it is the only national university in the country that has a charter that safeguards its academic freedom. But these safeguards were taken off by the Duterte administration by unilaterally abrogating a decades old agreement on some form of coordination every time the military wants to enter one of the eight campuses of the university. So to give a historical background, Natalie, the University of the Philippines has been the bastion of activism, dissent, criticism, and therefore of academic freedom in the country. It had a role during the Marcos Dictatorship. It had a role in criticizing and exposing the flaws and the frailties of every government since redemocratization in 1986. However, the Duterte administration does not seem to like the highly critical University of the Philippines. And therefore, this latest move is simply acting on their prejudices that the University of the Philippines is fostering the conditions conducive to the proliferation of
1: communism in the country. That is a truly chilling picture that you've just sketched for us. I also wanted to ask you, so we've talked about the bureaucracy, we've talked about University of the Philippines. What's happening in the Supreme Court? The topic or the issue I'm getting at is that the majority of the magistrates in the Supreme Court are Duterte appointees.
0: You are correct. The Supreme Court is supposed to be a co-equal branch in our presidential system. So you have the executive headed by the president, you have the legislature, the two houses of Philippine Congress, and then you have the Supreme Court. It's supposed to be some form of an arbiter of sorts if there are clashes between branches of government. And this makes judicial independence a sacred democratic norm in Philippine governance, in Philippine politics. However, the Duterte administration seemed to have accelerated the erosion of this norm of judicial independence by packing the court with appointees whose loyalty is determining factor for appointment rather than seniority and merit. There have been many times wherein the most senior associate justice was not appointed to the Supreme Court by the Duterte administration. So democratic erosion happens when the guardrails, meaning the unwritten norms, are no longer being followed by those in power. So before the Duterte administration, the norm of seniority as well as competence and merit as the criteria for appointment of judges have insulated the court from politics. And therefore, laid the groundwork so that the court can impartially decide on matters of constitutionality as well as whether branches of government like the executive or the presidency has overreached its powers. You don't see that now. You don't see the Supreme Court passing judgments on a lot of the policies that the Duterte administration have been implementing. I'll give you an example A very controversial anti-terrorism act was passed in September of last year in the midst of a pandemic. This anti-terrorism law has been observed as more draconian in nature by giving government more powers of surveillance, of freezing of finances, as well as of designation of potential terrorists. This gives a lot of power to the executive branch. Lawyers and civil society leaders and social movement activists have already filed challenges to the Supreme Court to render judgment on whether this law is constitutional. While the law, while the court has yet to make a final judgment, my current assessment of the ongoing deliberations of a Duterte majority Supreme Court are not really that optimistic in terms of they will likely uphold the constitutionality of this draconian anti-terrorist legislation.
1: I want to think now about the Philippines within the context of Southeast Asia and how Duterte's relationship with the military compares with that in other Southeast Asian countries, for example, Indonesia, Myanmar, Thailand.
0: Yes, there's an overall regional pattern of the backsliding of democracy in the region. And if you consult, for example, Freedom House scores of Southeast Asian countries, with the exception of Timor-Leste, no country is uh, truly free in Southeast Asia at present. And it's not surprising that the military seems to have a role in some of the country's erosion of its democratic norms and principles. So we've seen that in Thailand. We've seen also the reliance, for example, of Indonesian President Jokowi on the military and I think my good friend Natalie Shambi of Indonesia has tremendous research on this and and of course the latest case would be the coup in Myanmar so I think the Philippines conforms to the pattern of the further resurgence political resurgence of the military in Southeast Asia which does not bode well on the prospects of democratization in the region
1: indeed Duterte's term is due to end in June 2022. What are the prospects for democracy in the time that remains and do you anticipate him further embedding the military into these various structures that we've been discussing?
0: Right. Uh, You mentioned earlier that the Philippine military is bent on defeating Asia's oldest communist insurgency. And this is because... Unlike other Southeast Asian militaries, the Philippine military has yet to declare any victory to any of its historically perceived enemies. So this angers some of the militaries that I've interfaced with, but the Philippine military is a military in search of victory. And I think the unconditional trust and reliance of Duterte is seen by some leaders within the military as the last opportunity to declare victory on a historical enemy. So it's like they want to grab what they think is the final chance. And this is why part of the framework is the promise of the Duterte administration to end communist conflict by the end of its term in 2022, which a lot of skeptics have already said will not likely to happen. So this then puts the military in such a situation wherein they would want a continuity of a very pro-military, a very pro-hardline security approach to governance in the Philippines. And this leads us to the elections in 2022. So while the military is supposed to be a politically neutral institution, its core interests, as well as the individual interests of its leaders at present, are seem to be aligned with making sure that a Duterte sympathetic or an anointed candidate of Duterte would win in 2022. If you look at the opinion polls right now, if Filipinos are asked if elections were to be conducted today, that Duterte-anointed candidate is herself a Duterte. I'm referring to Duterte's own daughter, Sara Duterte.
1: Well, that just would continue a a long tradition in Philippine politics, wouldn't it, with um, power being handed down from father to child and particularly father to daughter?
0: Definitely. That's the only way Philippine politics work, the dynastic way.
1: We will have to get you back next year in 2022 when the elections do roll around so that we can um, unpack that more. But for now, Aris, I'd really like to thank you. That was a really interesting discussion and really appreciate you joining us on SEAC Stories. Thank you so much, Natalie.
0: And I hope that everyone in SEAC as well as in the University of Sydney stay safe and healthy. And I look forward to meeting all of you again when it's already permissible to do it.
1: You've been listening to SEAC Stories, brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. Make sure to keep up with all our SEAC Stories podcasts by following us on your favourite podcasting app. If you like the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, let your friends know about us on social media.